Welcome to British History, Royals, Rebels, and Romantics. I'm Carol Ann Lloyd. You can find me at carolannlloyd.com or at at shakeuphistory on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Please follow me so we can explore history together. I'm delighted you're joining me for a January 2021 podcast series, Your Questions Answered. As I've heard wonderful questions from so many of you, I thought it would be great to have some time to discuss them. And keep those questions coming. What we don't get to in January, we'll address later in the year. Thank you so much for starting your year by joining me in a journey back in time. We'll continue to shake up history, to explore lesser-known facts and figures, and to look at the people who don't always make the history books. Mostly, we'll continue to see how history shows us what's possible. After all, the stories of the past inform the present and inspire the future. And now, let's jump into your questions. Hi, and welcome to our first Your Questions Answered episode. Today, we'll be looking at your questions regarding queens and consorts. Recently, I posted a trivia question on Facebook. Who was crowned in the seven Tudor coronations? This raised a host of questions about Tudor queens and consorts, so I thought it would be a good time to jump right into that queen versus queen consort question, and we'll also take a look at those Tudor coronations. A regnant queen is a woman who inherits and reigns in her own right. Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II inherited the throne from her father, King George VI. She is the reigning monarch. Her claim to the throne is her own, not based on marriage to a king. If Prince Philip dies before Her Majesty, she will remain the Queen. When she dies, she will be succeeded by her heir, Prince Charles. Because the laws of succession until 2013 were based on a preference for a male ruler, there are far more reigning kings than queens. Most of these kings had wives, so we also have numerous queen consorts. The queen consort is the woman married to the male monarch. So, most recently, during the reign of King George VI, his wife was known as Queen Elizabeth and served as the Queen Consort. This ended when the king died and their daughter became Queen Elizabeth II. They're both being named Elizabeth is confusing, I agree. The current queen is Queen Elizabeth II. Her mother was known as Queen Elizabeth during her husband's reign. Queen consorts do not have a number. Although it would have been funny to number Henry VIII's queen consorts, Catherine I, Anne I, Jane, Anne II, Catherine II, Catherine III. Well, perhaps not. The first woman ever proclaimed heir to the throne and Queen of England was Matilda, way back in 1135, when Henry I died. His only son, William, had been killed in what's known as the White Ship Disaster. The ship, carrying the heir to the throne and several other nobles, sunk on its way back to England. After the death of his son, Henry was left with his daughter, the Empress Matilda, as the heir. Matilda had married the Holy Roman Emperor in 1114, which made her an empress. She kept that title when she returned to England in 1127 after the emperor's death. Henry I arranged a marriage for her then with Geoffrey, Count of Anjou, who was only 14 years old at the time, in 1128. She was living in Anjou when her father died, and, despite the pledges of the nobles, Most of them rallied behind the king's nephew, Stephen of Blois, when he claimed the throne. After all, he was well-known in England, able to return quickly from Bologna, and a man 
while Matilda was living abroad, pregnant and unable to travel, and a woman. Even so, Matilda claimed her throne. Her half-brother, Robert of Gloucester, rebelled against Stephen in 1138, and David of Scotland supported Matilda's claim as well. In 1139, Matilda invaded her country. Her forces, led by Gloucester, captured Stephen in 1141. Matilda began preparations to claim the throne and be crowned at Westminster Abbey. She and her supporters went to London, where the coronation was scheduled, but the city rose up against her and she had to flee to Oxford. Why? Well, contemporaries described her as displaying, quote, intolerable intolerable pride and willfulness as she tried to take her throne. One anonymous author stated, quote, she at once put on an extremely arrogant demeanor instead of the modest gain bearing proper to the gentle sex. Proud, arrogant, willful. That was fine for Stephen, who claimed a throne wasn't his, but not for Matilda. Her behavior, refusing to do what her male advisors told her to do, wasn't acceptable for the, quote, gentle sex. And since that behavior was pretty much required to rule, after all, the image of a ruler was a man with a sword, being monarch wasn't acceptable for the gentle sex either. This was the closest Matilda came to being officially crowned Queen of England at Westminster. She was unable to consolidate her position with sufficient support to move into London again. Eventually, the active civil war settled into a stalemate with occasional outbursts of fighting. Matilda's son Henry took a prominent role, and eventually he became head of those fighting for her claim. Matilda herself returned to Normandy in 1148. The disputes ended with a Treaty of Wallingford signed in 1153. This allowed Stephen to, re- to reign unchallenged until his death, after which he would be succeeded by Matilda's son, Henry. A year later, Stephen died and Henry became Henry II and started the Plantagenet dynasty. Matilda remained in Normandy and died in 1167 at age 65. She was the first woman to be proclaimed monarch of England, but she was never officially crowned queen. It was 400 years before the issue of a regnant queen would come up again. In the meantime, of course, there was king after king after king, and most of them were married. So there were a series of queen consorts, most of whom were crowned alongside their husbands, and some of which made quite an impression. For example, Eleanor of Aquitaine, Matilda's daughter-in-law, was crowned along with King Henry II on December 19, 1154. She was an experienced consort, having been queen consort of France for 15 years before she married Henry and becoming queen consort of England. After her husband's death, she was no longer queen, but she continued to influence English politics throughout the reign of her son Richard and for the early years of her son John. In fact, she's one of the earliest women to make history as a queen mother, although that phrase was not used at the time. Another queen consort, crowned alongside her husband, was Isabella of France, wife of Edward II. They were crowned together the 25th of of February, 1308. But as her nickname, the, quote, she-wolf of France, indicates, all was not well. In fact, she's the only queen consort who brings about the end of her term by returning from a diplomatic mission to France with an army and deposing her husband in 1326, becoming regent on behalf of her son. Along with her companion and possibly lover, Roger Mortimer, Isabella is blamed for the murder of Edward II in 1327. 
Her power did not last long, and young King Edward III asserted his own authority when he reached age 18 in 1330. Mortimer was executed, and Isabella was in prison for two years, although afterward she lived in style and was welcome in her son's home. As we come to the Wars of the Roses in the 15th century, the consorts play particularly significant roles. We see an example of a queen consort crowned on her own with Catherine of Valois. After Henry V's extraordinary victories at Agincourt and elsewhere, he was awarded the hand of French Princess Catherine as part of the Treaty of Troy. Henry was named heir to the King of France, and it looked like the Lancastrian dynasty was set for years of international glory. Henry and Catherine married in the Troyes Cathedral, 2nd of June, 1420, and she was crowned Queen Consort of England on 23rd February, 1421. It was a title she would hold just a year and a half, as Henry V died in France on the 31st of August, 1422. Despite her very short time as Queen Consort, Catherine helped shape England during the 15th century. She was now mother of the infant King Henry VI and the most eligible bachelorette in England. Concerned that someone would gain too much access to the young king through marriage to his mother, the council passed a law that Catherine could only marry with the king's consent, which he could not give until he was 18. At the time the law was passed, Henry VI was just six years old. If Catherine married before then, her husband would forfeit his lands and possessions. Perhaps thinking an untitled man would be a better option, Catherine married her her servant, Owen Tudor, secretly sometime before 1430 when their first child, Edmund, was born. Through this marriage, Catherine would eventually be the grandmother of Henry VII and the Tudor dynasty. Catherine died in 1347 at age 36. Her time as queen consort was short, but her husband and son and grandson changed English history forever. Such is the possible impact of a queen consort. Marguerite de Anjou, wife of Henry VI, was queen consort of England from 1445, when she married Henry VI, to his death in 1471. She was crowned queen consort in May 1445. Although she was just 15 when she arrived from France to marry the English king, she was blamed for many of the failures of the king and his court. As the king's health failed over the years, particularly his mental health and interest in government, it was left to Marguerite to manage factions at court. And that's what gained her the reincarnation of the nickname She-Wolf of France. But unlike Isabella, Marguerite was not fighting against her husband. She was fighting for him, doing anything she could to protect his reign and the future of their son. Through the Wars of the Roses, it was Marguerite who rallied support for the Lancastrian cause, turning to France, Scotland, and even former enemies to get what she needed. It was said that many supporters were fighting for the Lancastrian cause because they loved the king, but even more because they feared the queen. After Edward IV's initial victory, Marguerite escaped. Eventually, she reemerged with new armies and managed to briefly restore her husband to the throne. Only after her son was killed in battle and her husband mysteriously died in the Tower of London was Marguerite truly defeated. No longer queen consort after the death of Henry VI in 1471, she remained in England in the custody of her former lady-in-waiting until she was ransomed by Louis XI in 1475. She lived in poverty in France until her death in 1482. And speaking of Edward IV, his own queen consort was a bit controversial as well. 
Elizabeth Woodville was the widow of Sir John Grey, who died fighting for Henry VI. According to legend, the young, beautiful widow and mother pleaded with the new King Edward IV to show mercy to her husband's family so she could support her children. The king, riding by and seeing her under a tree or meeting her at court, there are different versions, immediately fell in love and tried to make her his mistress. She said no, so he married her. Another legend put forward by her detractors claims her mother, Jaquetta of Luxembourg, was a witch who put a spell on the king and trapped him into marrying Elizabeth. Whatever the details, the king and Elizabeth were secretly married in September 1464, while Edward's ministers continued to negotiate for a foreign royal marriage. When Edward announced he was already married, the Earl of Warwick in particular felt humiliated because the king had proceeded without his knowledge. The relationship between Warwick and Elizabeth Woodville was not off to a good start. It would not get any better. Elizabeth Woodville was crowned Queen Consort the 26th of May, 1465. Meanwhile, Warwick realized this was the beginning of Edward IV moving away from his strongest supporter and making his own decisions. Warwick had become accustomed to mentoring and managing the young king, and he realized he was losing power. Eventually, Warwick convinced the king's brother George to join him in rebelling against Edward and joining forces with Henry VI. Richard, Duke of Gloucester, stayed loyal to Edward and fought by his side right up until Edward died in 1483. And then Richard's loyalty changed. When Edward died in April, Elizabeth Woodville ceased to be queen consort. But with the accession of her son, she would be a powerful queen mother. Or not. It turned out Richard's support of his brother did not carry over to Edward's son becoming king, especially with Elizabeth Woodville at the king's side. Richard moved quickly, arresting Elizabeth's family members, canceling Edward V's coronation, coronation, and installing the young king in the tower. Elizabeth responded by publicly going into sanctuary at Westminster, signaling her distrust of Richard. Richard used the Archbishop of Canterbury to convince Elizabeth to release her other son, who joined Edward V in the tower. In June, just two months after the death of Edward IV, a sermon was preached that claimed Edward's marriage was invalid and his children illegitimate. Also illegitimate was George, Duke of Clarence's son, and that meant the heir to the throne was Richard himself. Elizabeth, now officially not the Queen Dowager, but simply Lady Grey, continued to influence politics. When Richard was crowned King Richard III on July 6th, Elizabeth remained in sanctuary. While there, it's thought she negotiated with Margaret Beaufort secretly to bring about Henry Tudor marrying Elizabeth of York and claiming the throne. Four years after she lost her title as queen consort and her expected role as the young Edward V's mother and advisor, Elizabeth saw her daughter crowned queen consort as wife of Henry VII. Of course, she may or may not also have known what really happened in one of the greatest mysteries in English history. What happened to the princes, who were actually a king and a prince, in the tower? And now we arrive at the question I mentioned at the beginning. Who were the people crowned in the seven Tudor coronations? It turns out that queens and queen consorts make up a significant number. The first Tudor coronation was Henry VII, who was crowned in October 1485, after he defeated Richard III at the Battle of Bosworth. He married Elizabeth of York the following January. She was crowned queen consort the 25th of November 1487, after their young son turned a year old. 
Elizabeth of York provided invaluable support to Henry VII's new dynasty. She represented the white rose that contributed to the Tudor rose narrative. She provided two sons and two daughters. Despite the fact that their marriage was made for purely political reasons, their relationship became a close and productive one. She was a calming force in the face of Henry's desperate paranoia, something that wasn't obvious until after her death in 1503. So Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, his queen consort, were the first two Tudor coronations. The third coronation followed the most straightforward succession in the Tudor dynasty, an adult son inherited the throne from his father. Henry VIII took the throne peacefully as an adult male, and he was crowned alongside his new wife, Catherine of Aragon. Catherine had undergone a great deal before that coronation. Her first marriage was to Arthur, the Prince of Wales. He died six months later, leaving Catherine a widow and a pawn in the hands of Henry VII and Ferdinand of Aragon. She was appointed the Aragonese ambassador to England in 1507, the first female ambassador in European history. Seven years after Arthur's death, Henry VII died, and the new king acted quickly to marry Catherine and have a joint coronation. So the third Tudor coronation was that of Henry VIII and Catherine of Aragon as king and queen consort. Catherine brought experience and a stabilizing force to the young and exuberant Henry VIII. It's fitting that Henry shared his coronation with Catherine as she was his wife for more than half his reign. She saw the best in the king and offered him support, but she also set limits in what she would do and provided the king with a daughter who believed in her ability to rule the country. In denying Henry the easy annulment he sought, Catherine demanded that she and her daughter be respected and seen as royal. This was an essential part of Mary's ability to fight for her own rights years later. But in the meanwhile, Henry decided he needed a son. England had never been successfully ruled by a queen. Remember those civil war years of Matilda's attempt at claim on the throne? And England was just coming out of years of civil war between Yorkist and Lancastrian forces. At least so argued the king. Faced with being told no by Catherine of Aragon and the Pope, Henry decided to look elsewhere. He found people who would agree with him, and with their support, he took the step of, as he put it, restoring the authority for the English church where it should have been all along with Henry himself. Henry needed to take drastic action in 1533 because he had already secretly married his second wife, Anne Boleyn. Anne's marriage might have been in secret, but her coronation ceremony was anything but. In fact, even though coronations for queen consorts were a traditional part of the English monarchy, Anne Boleyn's coronation was one of a kind. Henry was a -a one-of-a-kind king, breaking with Rome, establishing his own church with himself at the head, executing wives and ministers who let him down, dissolving the monasteries and seizing land and funds for himself, and marrying six women. He may have started out with a traditional marriage to a Spanish princess and a straightforward coronation, but by the time of Anne's coronation, he was creating a whole new power dynamic. So it's no real surprise that he saw Anne Boleyn's coronation as a way of him refuting the Pope's authority and asserting his own will and claiming that his word superseded the law. Anne Boleyn's coronation in June 1533 was, in some ways, a second coronation for Henry himself. It was the first coronation following England's assertion of independence from papal jurisdiction. 
to crown a visibly pregnant woman called attention to the ongoing power of the dynasty. The authority to crown Anne rested with Thomas Cranmer, Archbishop of Canterbury, and Cranmer in turn received his authority from the king. Henry rewrote his own coronation oath, and though he did not actually participate in Anne's ceremony, it was as if he was reputing papal authority of his original coronation and asserting his supremacy. A strikingly visible way Anne's coronation as queen consort was different from those of her predecessors was that she was crowned with St. Edward's crown. No other queen consort had worn St. Edward's crown, which was one of the most revered objects in the coronation regalia. The contemporary description specifically states that, quote, the archbishop set the crown of St. Edward on her head. To use St. Edward's crown creates the impression that this is a monarch's coronation. It's a bit surprising as it could have been taken to indicate that Anne's authority was equal to Henry's. Maybe Henry simply trusted that no one would be foolish enough to think anyone's authority was equal to his. In fact, some scholars think the use of St. Edward's crown was intended to call attention to the legitimacy of Anne's unborn child, who was of course assumed to be male. In an ironic twist, that child would not be male, but would be the longest reigning and most successful Tudor monarch, and would wear St. Edward's crown herself. So, as the fourth Tudor coronation, Anne Boleyn's shook up expectations. Not only was she very unpopular with the people, the celebrations surrounding her coronation went on for four days, with Anne represented as a type of Virgin Mary. It was the first coronation to include humanist themes, combining some Catholic iconography with classical mythology and references to a new English imperialism. It implied Anne's queenship came from heaven and that Anne was heaven-sent. Three years later, Henry decided she wasn't heaven-sent after all and married four more times. None of Henry's other wives were crowned. And then, after 400 years of queen consorts, three women claimed to be regnant queens of England over a period of just six years. It was unthinkable at the time. Despite Henry VIII's unrelenting efforts to have enough male heirs to secure the future, the Tudors were better at having daughters than sons. Henry VIII's elder sister Margaret had a son, but he became King of Scotland and was no use to England. Henry had one son and two daughters, just looking at the legitimate children who could inherit the throne, and no grandchildren. Henry's younger sister Mary had two daughters, Frances and Eleanor, as well as a son who tragically died young. Francis had three daughters, and Eleanor had two sons who died young and a daughter. Edward VI was crowned King of England in 1547, the fourth Tudor coronation, and one of only two Tudor coronations that didn't involve a woman. Six years later, realizing his health was failing, Edward VI sought to name an heir who would carry on his religious reform. When he was first planning his, quote, device for the succession, he started by anticipating male heirs of Francis Brandon or Jane Grey. But as those male heirs did not arrive in time, he was faced with only females as possible successors. His Catholic half-sister Mary, his apparently Protestant half-sister Elizabeth, or his very Protestant cousin, Jane Grey. 
Henry VIII had made both of his daughters illegitimate by Parliamentary Act, but then returned them to the succession by a later Parliamentary Act. Edward chose to focus on the illegitimate status and set both of his sisters aside to proclaim Lady Jane Grey as his heir. Thus, after Edward's death, Lady Jane Grey was proclaimed Queen of England. She was the second woman to be proclaimed Queen of England in her own right. Henry VIII had included Frances Brandon and her daughters in the Final Succession Act, but only after the reign of his own daughters, Mary and Elizabeth Tudor. Furthermore, if Mary and Elizabeth were excluded, Frances herself should have been next. So Edward and his council president, John Dudley, certainly manipulated the facts to arrive at Jane Grey. And it's no coincidence that Jane had recently married Dudley's son, Guildford. The action was illegal. Edward's device contradicted the law and was not improved by Parliament before his death. Nevertheless, Dudley kept Edward's death on the 6th of July, 1553, secret for four days before proclaiming Jane Grey the Queen on the 10th of July. Queen Jane was installed in the Tower of London, the traditional stronghold of the monarch and the site of the royal army and weapons. It was also the traditional place a monarch would live while preparing for an upcoming coronation. Dudley expected the new queen to make her husband the king, which calls into immediate focus the contradictory nature of a female monarch. The king's position was higher than that of the queen's. A husband was, quote, the head of the wife. So how could a woman be regnant queen if she were married? Jane answered the question in part for herself. She stunned Dudley by maintaining she would not make Guilford the king, but merely a duke. But he was still her husband, and the larger question remained. Even so, Jane had bigger problems in her interfering father-in-law's boundless ambition. Mary Tudor claimed the throne as well. Although Jane may have been seen as having the upper hand initially, with control of London and the Tower and official recognition as queen, Mary's support was growing. Mary was popular with the English people, and Jane was relatively unknown. Most of England had expected Mary to become queen after Edward's death. She assembled a large army and prepared to challenge Jane for the throne. Dudley rode out of London to intercept Mary and suppress her forces, but that move marked the beginning of the end. Mary's forces continued to gain strength. Without Dudley in the tower, Jane's supporters began to reconsider and fade away. With Dudley gone, the Privy Council decided to throw their support to Mary. They declared Dudley a traitor. Unable to defeat Mary, Dudley tried to return to London, but before he could get there, Mary was proclaimed queen on the 19th of July. By this point, those in the tower had fled from Jane's presence, and she was left nearly alone. She remained in the tower, but the canopy of state was taken down, and she was now a prisoner. Jane was queen for less than two weeks. Although she issued official proclamations as, quote, Jane the Queen from the Tower, she was found guilty of treason for attempting to take the throne from its rightful occupant, Queen Mary. Jane was not crowned, but was she a queen? We'll take up that complicated question in a future episode. For now, let's move forward to the final coronations of the Tudor dynasty, Mary I and Elizabeth I. There are details about these coronations in an earlier podcast, so I'll include that link in the show notes. The coronations of Mary I and Elizabeth I literally changed history. In 1553, for the first time, a woman was crowned reigning monarch of England. Mary Tudor was the first crowned regnant queen. Elizabeth Tudor was the second. After hundreds of years, 
of no crowned regnant queens, the Tudors had two. The the coronation ceremony itself had to be reimagined. It wasn't for a king or a queen consort. It was for a reigning queen. How would that work? Mary's coronation followed essential traditions that had shaped the monarchy for hundreds of years, but also included unique elements associated with her identity as queen. Her coronation shaped the future of the monarchy and the purpose of royal ceremonies. Mary resisted her council's suggestion that Parliament meet before the coronation to declare her queen. She recognized this would create the impression she owed her authority to Parliament instead of the other way around. By resisting the advice of her council, Mary demonstrated her independence and authority over the first major event of her reign, her coronation. The problem was there was no precedent for crowning a regnant queen, so Mary used elements of the king's and queen consort's identities. She was crowned three times, including once with St. Edward's crown, once with the imperial crown, and once with a third crown made especially for her. This echoed the way her brother had been crowned king. She was also invested with all the coronation regalia, ring, bracelets, scepters, spurs, and orb, just as a king would have been. She herself referred to the ceremony as positioning her as a, quote, queen consort married to her realm. Some contemporaries describe her as wearing her hair loose as a consort would. Cardinal Pole, Mary's fervent supporter, described her as a second virgin, making a way for female monarch to be accepted as one whose reign would support the victory of God over the, va- over the malice of men. Read Edward VI and Religious Reform. Mary, as a second virgin, would save the nation from spiritual death. Mary used her coronation as a way to reassert the Catholic elements and logic of the ceremony, despite the law of the land now holding to the Church of England. Mary had oil blessed by a Catholic priest and smuggled in for her coronation so she would not be anointed by that tainted Protestant oil. Bishop Gardner, who anointed her, and the imperial ambassadors who watched, knew she was proceeding according to the authority of the pre-Reformation Church. Further clarity on Mary's role as Queen Regnant came when she married Philip of Spain. Determined to return England to the, quote, true faith, Mary eagerly agreed to the request of Charles V that she marry his son Philip. The proposed marriage was unpopular, leading to the Wyatt Rebellion and concerns in Parliament. Eventually, Parliament agreed to the marriage on certain conditions, that Philip be recognized as king only during Mary's lifetime, that he had no more power than a consort, although the gender roles were reversed, that Mary hold primary authority for governing her realm, that Mary and any children they had would not leave England, that members of the Spanish court could not gain prominent positions in England, and specifically that Philip would not claim the crown for himself if he outlived Mary. Mary's Act for Regal Power, passed by Parliament in 1554, stated unequivocally that a reigning queen held her power as, quote, fully, wholly, and absolutely, end quote, as her male predecessors. This established that crown authority was not dependent on gender. That would, of course, be extremely important in the next reign. Despite Mary's desire to provide Philip with a son and heir, she died without having children. 
And despite her determination to maintain English as a Catholic nation, she ultimately had no choice but to leave the crown to her legal heir, her half-sister Elizabeth. Elizabeth's succession reignited all the worries about female reign, strengthened by what many saw as Mary's obsession with pleasing her Catholic husband and father-in-law at the expense of England. Elizabeth had followed her sister's path in many ways. She too had been disinherited. Mary's parliament had declared Henry VIII's marriage to Catherine of Aragon valid, making Elizabeth illegitimate and possibly ineligible for the throne. She too resisted the suggestion that parliament meet before the coronation to declare her queen. She too was crowned according to laws about religion she didn't agree with. She was not declared supreme head of the Church of England during her coronation, as Mary and Edward had been. She, too, faced assumptions that her reign was unnatural. In fact, John Knox's The First Blast Against the Trumpet, The First Blast of the Trumpet Against the Monstrous Regiment of Women, had just been published. Elizabeth, the seventh and final person crowned in the Tudor dynasty, had to create an impression that would overcome a near lifetime of illegitimacy and suspicion. She'd been disinherited by her father before her third birthday. During her brother's reign, she'd been under suspicion and accused of conspiring with Thomas Seymour, who was executed for treason. Her brother had attempted to remove her from the succession. She had been declared illegitimate again by law during her sister's reign and had been under even more suspicion, spending weeks in the Tower of London. And now here she was, a 25-year-old woman without the backing of Catholic Europe, but with the determination to take the throne and be the queen. Elizabeth's coronation was designed to represent her as a divine Protestant savior. She had become very popular, especially in the final years of her sister's reign. She understood the value of ceremony and of presenting herself as queen. Her coronation depended on the procession that preceded it, complete with pageants demonstrating her descent from Henry VII and Elizabeth of York, and then through Henry VIII and Anne Boleyn. Elizabeth was the Tudor Rose and the Imperial Queen. She was presented with authority coming from the biblical Deborah, judge and restorer of Israel. One pageant even presented Elizabeth in Parliament, something that had never been done before. Elizabeth's coronation was her opportunity to put into practice the advice of Sir Nicholas Bacon, whom she appointed Lord Keeper of the Great Seal. He counseled her not to wait for Parliament to repeal the acts regarding her legitimacy, but to proceed directly to the coronation. In his words, quote, The crown, once worn, quite taketh away all defects whatsoever. Elizabeth was crowned the second regnant queen of England on 15th of January, 1559. She had asked astrologer and scholar John Dee to choose the date. He had said this one indicated a long and successful reign. She arrived at Westminster Hall dressed in traditional crimson robes, perhaps those worn by Mary five years earlier. She was anointed according to the liturgy for a male monarch and invested with a consecrated regalia, just as her sister had been. She was also crowned three times, with St. Edward's crown, with the imperial crown, and with a third crown, perhaps a smaller one made for Mary, or maybe even the one made for her mother. About 25 years before, Anne Boleyn had been crowned with St. Edward's crown. Now, her daughter was crowned with the same crown, beginning a reign that would last into the next century, establishing England as a cultural leader, and world power. 
If you want to know more about Tudor coronations, I highly recommend Alice Hunt's book, The Drama of Coronation, which is an excellent resource. And that brings us up to the end of answering your questions about queens, consorts, and coronations up to those seven famous or infamous Tudors. Next week, I'll be answering questions about a new celebrity, thanks to Netflix's Bridgerton, Queen Charlotte. Let me know what your questions are about royals, rebels, and romantics. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share with a friend. Do send any questions or comments. I'd love to hear from you where we should explore next. And please subscribe and leave a review. I'd really appreciate it. I'm so glad we could explore history together. Till next time. Thank you.